So, um, Anthony, the first one I want to talk about is love levels. In the book, Love Your Energy, you've explained there are four different levels of love. Um, divine, guardian, self-love and express love. First of all, I'd like, I'd like to explain how I got to developing that model because it, it was something that I spent at least three months trying to understand. And it came from some a few different people uh, that I saw on social media saying, I don't know what love is. And I was thinking, wow, you know, they really don't know what love is. And then I thought, I'm going to write a thesis about this. So I started with my, um, my question and then researching down into different areas that I could understand how, what love is, how we perceive love. And then I wanted a system that was really clear to understand. So I thought, well, I have to start at the beginning. And the beginning of the system has got to be when we're born, hasn't it, really? And then, and then, and then as a parent, I remember thinking, do my, you know, do my children understand love when they're babies? So, and at that point, I, I remember my interactions with my 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 children when they were babies and how they would interact with me and my energy and then i went into more research to understand from a sociological point of view love from are we do we bring love into this reality is love something we already know is it something we are searching for from the beginning or is it something that we accidentally decide that we enjoy experiencing as children is it a mistake or is it by chance and and then i started to look at research that have been done with babies and some of the research is not very nice at all to be honest with you i actually started off with some research called the forbidden experiment and i won't go it, this is an experiment that's been going on for thousands of years that many previous um kings I've tried using to understand what happens to the babies when there's no contact, when there's no love giving to them. And then that led me on to Henry Chapin back in, in the early 1900s. So love levels, very briefly, is understanding, do we bring love into this reality? How that influences us as children? And then the next part of the love level is the influence from our guardians and how that affects the love that we brought into this reality. And then from then, the, the next stage is our internal love, which has either been supported from the love that we brought into this reality, how our parents and our guardians have influenced it. And then we have our self-love. And then from there, it's our experienced love, expressed love, sorry, how we interact with our friends, our family, our relationships. Oh, wow. That is fascinating. Even though I got that point from reading your book, hearing you explain it hits home a lot better to really define those different levels, almost like a roadmap. Each one has to be put in place before the other one. Right, exactly. Perfectly said. So you come into this reality. In the book, I have categorically proven that we come in knowing what love is. Okay. So we, we, we know there's proof there, there's evidence. And then how our parents then are either going to support the love we already know, or they diminish that love. And then that affects our self-love, our confidence, our self-esteem, 
And then that in turn affects the way that reality programs us as individuals. Because if our guardian love is lacking, we are more inclined to have lower self-confidence, low self-esteem. And then when we express love, we are more inclined to create drama around our deepest needs that have not been satisfied when we were children. Wow. So if you, if you have a relationship with somebody that's lacking in confidence and self-esteem, categorically, as somebody that works with people and has them for 17 years, I can tell you that it is from the, the earliest age in their life when their parents were interacting with them. So it's either from trauma or from neglect that's affected their confidence or self-esteem. That is phenomenal. And I know from just talking to random people on the streets and things like that who you meet in your daily life, if they don't outwardly express love, it always seems to stem to a childhood problem or it's like the cliche, oh, it's childhood issues. But for you to have that roadmap makes it so much more defined and clearer. It's not just, um, oh, it's the past, I can't do anything about it. Right. It, it gives it more of you know justice to it. Right. So, and this is where the responsibility comes in as well. So if we don't take responsibility as individuals for how we feel, that means we're constantly blaming the environment and the people in it. And we then are not we're stuck in a cycle of why did that happen to me? Why did they treat me that way? And we don't grow from and use it as a lesson to move forward and grow. So the responsibility aspect of our childhood is not just about us as victims or us as persecutors. You know, it has to be a more of a holistic view of what we go through in life. Yeah. And you touched on the uh, forbidden experiment. Now, I don't want to get too much into it in case it's super negative, but you did talk about um, the in, in the book, Love Your Energy, you spoke, there was a small chapter on was it the Romanian baby problem? Could you explain that? I'm assuming that would be linked to this forbidden experiment. Well, the forbidden experiments basically ended in the 1950s and they stopped. It was not ethical to use babies at that point. So they used monkeys instead. And I think it was early 1950s. And the last forbidden experiment was done with a baby monkey to see if they took the monkey away from its mother, how it would respond and how it, how it would um, affect their, their psyche and their behavior. Oh, I see. But kings, and all the way back to the Egyptians, have experimented with babies in that way. And that's why it's called the, the forbidden experiment, because it's just not ethical or moral or legal, thankfully. So to move closer into the book, you again talk about the Romanian baby problem. Um, I don't think it's just Romanians, but what you were uh, stating in the book, how I took it, was that babies without love and affection from a guardian caregiver parent go on to then suffer and could potentially die from unknown causes from that lack of connection. Right. Well, if we go back to David Chapin, that was what he his statistics understood that so in philadelphia in in the early 1900s 
there was one institution specifically, which was the Philadelphia Institution, and 100% of babies or infants from the age of zero, um, zero, yeah, one to zero to two years old died in that institution. Oh, yeah, 100%. So if people went in, it was guaranteed it was going to die. So we know that a lack of affection to babies is absolutely critical. It, it destroys a baby's ability to want to connect. It turns itself off. I mean, that's, that's a very clear outline that love is something that we know. So then if we move into the, you know, the 1980s, the closest sociological um, observation was in Romania. And how, so we move away from the dying aspect. How does a lack of love affect our physical body? And these Romanian children, due to a lack of affection and love, they were physically not developing in line with, with normal um, development. The br- their brain wasn't developing. The size of their heads was smaller. That's, that's incredible. If I remember right, you later then said in that same chapter that once they were received love, affection from people, they would catch up. That's right. So the it was some American, four American professors went over to start um, some experiments because they had a baseline, which was really bad. It wasn't something that they had created so they could step in and measure the progress from where it was in, as a natural state and then increase the affection and increase the amount of in social interaction that and watch and measure how that would influence these children and it was it was astounding wow so babies have or well, everyone but babies to start with have an inclination for affection they're born with love in them absolutely it's categorical and when i read the introduction to the book before i fully read the book i was coming from a skeptical mind thinking well, that can't be true. Surely they're not born with love. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. And I would have agreed with you as well if it wasn't um, for the evidence that I'd collected. If it probably, actually, having children has also helped me understand. Um, because the way, you treat, the way you treat babies, they, they, they do understand, and you just, it is uncomprehendable how they do that but then there's research now to prove that our heart is is pulsing energy out from the body and it is now proven with mris how that this energy is moving up to three feet from the body okay so the heart is pumps and that's the function. But how does it pump? What's the reason behind it? An interesting question, right? So there's some cells that spontaneously create a spark of energy that shocks the heart. And it's called the, S, the SA node. So our heart is using energy like a small battery. And if it breaks, what happens? We have a, a pacemaker fitted, which is a battery, which does what? This, this group of cells would do. So the, the heart is run by a battery and the brain is also run by electrical current that is moving from one um, synapsis to another. We are constantly emitting EMFs, electrical magnetic frequencies, 
and now they can be measured with an MRI, even more exciting is they can tell what emotion somebody is experiencing whilst measuring this frequency from the body. So that would, that would assume that each emotion has, if we're talking about EMF, a different frequency. Absolutely. Absolutely it does. So if we now take that scientific fact back and apply that concept towards a baby that comes out into this world, that, that if it doesn't receive love and affection and care, physical stimulation, it will die. How does it know it's receiving that or not? Well, it's unconsciously connecting to the person that is un also unconsciously projecting their, their intentions and their feelings, and the baby's receiving that into its energy field and reading its environment. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? The fact you say that that's factual, again, I'm like, no, that can't be true. But the fact you've brought up, there is research to suggest and claim that is the way it is. This there is many fields that are proving energy, and it isn't just, you know, I mean, if we look at uh, botany, we look at neurology, we can look at um, psychology, they're all proving different aspects of the same function of consciousness, exactly the same. But different types of science are now supporting this one conclusion, which is we have a consciousness which is expanding. We're emitting it. We are part of a greater consciousness, which is also receiving and transmitting information. And that is proved with epigenetics. So again, we're looking at science proving consciousness. And that's in my first book, Mind Bending Belief. So I wrote that two years ago. And then when I started looking at love, I didn't identify love as part of consciousness at all. I didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind to think consciousness had an emotion linked to it. And it does. It does. And if you look at consciousness from an expanding point of view, when we're in a place of love, how do we react? We are thoughtful. We're considerate. We are compassionate. We are growing as individuals. We want to be around more positive frequencies. So if, if love is the primal function of consciousness and we take that back to the babies back in the 1940s, they've come from a larger consciousness. They are in physical form. If they don't receive what it is that they're used to receiving, they, they unconsciously will, this isn't right. This is too different from what I'm used to receiving. Therefore, I'm going to switch myself off. That's incredible. And then that would assume that every animal and every maybe plant living organism would have a similar thing. So it's a really interesting point. And if you look on YouTube, you can see animals acting from a higher level of consciousness. Okay. So let me... Let me explain that. If a dog runs into a burn, burning building to pull a baby out of the building, that is a higher level of consciousness. Mm. If a cat is using its paw to stop a toddler from moving down the stairs, falling down the stairs, that's a higher level of consciousness. Because cats 
love pushing things off, right? There's more videos of cat, cats pushing things off surfaces than there is videos stopping things being pushed off surfaces. That's right, yeah, sure. So we've now established factually babies and us humans, animals, plants have a frequency that we emit and can receive non-verbally. You spoke in the book, I think the chapter was called Baby Eaters, and it was about a six-month-old, I think in Thailand, um, left in a hammock uh, while the caregiver was doing dishes or something from a window they could see, and there was a lizard. Uh, what type of lizard was it? A big one, I guess. Well, they are quite big, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they're almost the size of um, alligators in Thailand. So they're, they're not of the alligator or crocodile species that I know of, so they are lizards, they have a lizard like, but they do eat puppies and babies in Thailand. So when my client spoke to me about this one occasion, um, when he explained, he left the baby with his mother, the mother-in-law, and when they came back, the mother-in-law said that she'd left the baby in a hammock asleep while she was in the kitchen. And she explained that a lizard had come to the hammock wanting to explore and that the baby woke up and started screaming hysterically enough for the mother-in-law to leave the house and scare the lizard away. And you, you could just say that's a coincidence, but as you've just stated, it's probably a lot more factually true that he sensed a different frequency. You could. The young baby would have been... Um, unconsciously feeling the environment the same way it would understanding whether it's been loved and cared for and nurtured and sense there was danger because there was no apparently there was no way for this baby to see over the hammock so it was it was all done through ESP and then to take that into or maybe delve back a little bit into the four levels of love if someone hasn't had the best upbringing they've had a generation before them that didn't express the right love. How can this person find their self-love and then go about creating a positive expressed love towards their others? Okay, that's a really deep question. First of all, I would like to start with a new, a different model that I used, which is in my new book, which has been published now, uh, Mind Your Mood. And this model is, is a reflection of our emotions and how there is no right or wrong. As a philosopher, I have to work from, well, I do work from that premise. Because if we start saying there's right and there's wrong in this world, then we start saying, well, what emotions are incorrect? And there isn't an incorrect emotion to experience. It's just all emotion. I would prefer to look at emotion from a lower level of consciousness and a higher level of consciousness. So, when we act out or we're stressed or we are ill, we have a lower level of consciousness. We deal with ourselves. When our consciousness is high, we're we have an ability to understand other people greater and share our love and our compassion. Then taking that concept into childhood, right. if we have parents that treat us from a lower level of consciousness because that is how they were treated, it's their responsibility to become the observer of their behavior and their conditioning from their parents. If that person doesn't take that responsibility, for whatever reason, they will pass it on to their children. And then it's that generation's responsibility to wake up to the conditioning. Right. 
So at that point, if the if that new parent then wakes up to the condition, says, ah, this is how my mother treated me. This is not sustainable. I don't feel good. It's not good for my environment. They just raise their level of consciousness. Ah, wow. Now, is that right? Can we say that's right or good? No, because it, it's no it, being in a lower level of consciousness or a higher level. It doesn't make any difference. It's evolution. But there's nobody, there's no evolution police coming to our door. Have you evolved enough this year? So we can't say this right or wrong. If we use the justice system or we use law to dictate emotions, we, it doesn't work that way. Wow. And I really like the clarification you've just given there, which is there's no right or wrong. How there's only a higher frequency, higher consciousness, lower frequency, lower consciousness. It, that can stem for everything then, can't it? Right. To the weather. Right. Oh, it's bad weather. It's raining. It's not. It's just a different type of weather. Right, exactly. And that way we get to reframe the world around us and we get to not be at the, how can I put this now? Are you affected by the world or are you, in, are you, are you acting within the world? Are you responsible for yourself? Are you not taking responsibility and saying it's the world's fault that I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing? So if you walk outside and say it's raining, and then feel bad about it's raining, have you taken responsibility for yourself? No, not at all. So if you've had a bad childhood and you've experienced neglect or trauma, you can sit back and say, that was wrong and I shouldn't have been treated that way. Or we can grow from it and we can then own the emotion that was given to us and then we can heal it. Or not. And, it, and there's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad. There just is this process of evolving and expanding our consciousness or not and just living at, living at the mercy of our conditioning. And that's going to take me a while to get into that framework of thinking good and bad is not the way forward. It's higher and lower. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 once you start using that model, it allows you to move to a place of forgiveness faster. When people are unconsciously harming us or somebody unconsciously says something negative towards us, we can look past the action into their conditioning and say, how were they conditioned as, as children? How was their love diminished when they interacted with their parents? Mm. And automatically, when we look at life from a lower and level level of consciousness, it, it encourages compassion for other people and for ourselves. You just shouldn't really react to the world, but instead take responsibility for the actions you can and give empathy and love towards those that have harmed you to stop that cycle from repeating itself. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I did not have a pleasant childhood. Okay. So when I speak of we, we search for forgiveness and we have to heal. And if people are listening to this thinking, oh, well, he's not experienced. I did experience Okay, so I did have to heal and I did have to forgive. And that healing process is will change your life. But I also remember a part of that process where I didn't want to heal and didn't want to forgive either. And it traps us in this negativity. And it's really hard to invite more love and passion into our life 
when we're still holding onto the past and blaming our environment for the way we feel. But when we step out of that and, and look back into the past and say, well, that was an experience. And yet, do I need to carry it with me or can I put it down? Or should I carry it a little bit longer and then put it down? Or just carry it with me for the rest of my life? That's a choice too, right? So we've spoken about the, the babies and how they need affection in order to gain the higher levels of consciousness and love that they require to grow and uh, prosper. You said some of your clients before who have been um, materially rich have neglected to have the affection between their children. And you said in the book that some of the things that they would provide are material wealth and financial wealth, but never really the affectional wealth. How would you know that the children needed love and not some other form of care? Well, I've been lucky enough to be in the environments of um, individuals that have raised to stardom and observed family dynamics. And I've also, I've also been in environments where I've witnessed children that are from... Um, homes where it's a daily survival and if i compare those types two types of people the material world didn't really have an impact on whether they felt love or not so that isn't a defining part of life i can categorically say that i've spent time with families that they're that the parents have shown an immense amount of love towards their children and those children have grown up to be fully autonomous beings meaning they can stand on their own two feet and they have their own ability to judge and got good morals and good standards and ability to maintain their own balance in their life and create a life that they they're passionate about but then you have children that are born into very wealthy families and they grow up with a dynamic where they're creating drama because they want attention because of the love that they never received. And they're not growing up, some of them, to be fully autonomous beings. They're growing up with an inner, inner child which has suffered and he still needs to be healed. But because of all the exterior world looks in balance and looks like it's thriving and it seems from the outside that they are developed but from the inside actually no not at all yeah that makes sense that makes sense on a personal level as well some people i spoke to have had the unfortunate event of suicide in their family or friends and most of the time the common denominator is everyone will say that we just didn't know uh, on the outside they were fine but it, it gives a, a a new avenue to look at these sort of situations how someone could affect or be affected internally, not just because they don't have enough money to feed the family, or if they do, it might be more inner work that has led to those sort of situations. Well, over the 17 years, I've been working one-to-one -one with my clients. I can categorically say the primal drive behind every phobia, fear, limiting belief that you will have everybody, all of us will ever experience is from, it's, it's from a place of lack of love. As parents of children, that is the primal responsibility 
the innocence of our children and the love that we share with our children beyond anything that's external, like holidays, cars, clothes, that can change at a moment's notice. But once once we develop a baby's love, uh, we have been developed from our guardian love. When we go into self-love, that's so strong. We can make whatever we want to make of ourselves in this life. So the real, the real make or break of our reality has to be the second level, which is guardian love. So I'll ask you this one question. Have you ever seen somebody crawling down the street on their, on their arm saying, I just didn't have the confidence to learn how to walk? <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. Everybody learns how to walk. As we grow as children, if we see everybody walking efficiently, what happens? We walk efficiently. And it's the same with love. If we've shown love, as, if we as parents take responsibility and make that the primal concern along with our, our children's innocence to make sure they're loved, they will learn how to love effectively. So we've summed up really what a lack of love does in uh, in both a child's babies and adult love i think a chapter after that was talking about the rat drug addict and if i remember right this this one was quite humorous but also profound to think about which was the experiment when they took rats in a small cage with nothing to do can you explain that story yeah, i'm sure you can explain it much better than i can yeah rat rat park um, it was an experiment to understand addiction initially. They wanted to understand um, what, if a mouse would keep on going back to the drugs and whether it would kill itself like some human beings do. Now, there is a quite a big factor that we can't truly understand through that experiment, which is the need to um, find purpose in life. However, there is other experiments to prove that mice also need purpose in their life, in their little ecosystems. So they have a hierarchy within as well. What was lacking in that experiment was the mice's ability to be able to relax and have fun. So when they changed the circumstance and put them in a, a park where you know it was colourful and there was more space, they found that the mice didn't go back to the drugs because they didn't want to escape. And it's basically what we do as human beings. If we don't connect to something, so if we don't connect to somebody, then we, we want to disconnect. And, and if I would, would apply some of my knowledge towards the disconnect, people that take drugs to totally disconnect are actually connecting to something because their consciousness is expanding back into the original consciousness. We are connecting to that consciousness that's greater than us. So it is a connection, if that makes sense. The same way the baby has come from a greater consciousness into this reality. And if it doesn't feel that love, it will turn itself off. That is essentially what I feel from um, a philosopher's point of view, is that when people do disconnect from each other, the drugs actually helps them to connect to that higher level of consciousness. Oh, okay. Would that be based on the premise that there's like an afterlife or a before life? I think you said somewhere in the book, there's a greater consciousness we come from or go to. All right. So let's stick with the science. So if we look at epigenetics, um, Dr. Bruce Lipton 
has been looking at cells and how cells work. Now, if we go back to the 80s, what, what was the brain of the cell when you learned what, 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 how cells function? Do you remember the brain of the cell? The brain of the cell is the nucleus, if I remember right. Right, exactly. Only this last 15 years, we were able to take the nucleus out of a cell. So if you put a, a cell inside a Petri dish without the nucleus, you would expect it to do nothing, right? So when they put food in the same Petri dish, what do you think happened to the cell? Gravitated over to the food. So, so science has, been, uh, has had uh, an understanding that the nucleus was the brain of the cell. It's not the brain of the cell. Actually, the skin of the cell is, has a consciousness and understands what environment it's in. So to took the same cell and put it into a Petri dish with toxins, what do you think the, the cell did? Based on what you said, go away from the toxins. That's right. It went away from the toxins. So now let's go a step further. They put that cell into a Petri dish that could make bone, and it made bone without the nucleus. Wow. So it's a combination of its parts, not one part in particular. Well, it's a combination of energy and receiving information from something greater than itself. So there, there was a woman that had a heart transplant and she ha started having cravings for a particular type of crisp. And she started to have a fascination for motorcycles. And when she found out about the donor, he was a motorcycle enthusiast and he loved those particular types of crisps. Wow. That's too hard. That's too far to believe. It's, it's documented. It's not just once. This has been documented different ways. So we can use science to prove that we are a consciousness, but it also proves that we are part of a greater consciousness. I don't go there. I don't give it a name. I, I know it has functions because they're proven through science. And I also know that it is from a place of love and that as human beings, when we're in a frequency of love, we grow and it's sustainable. That's fact. When we're in a frequency of fear, which comes hate, jealousy, envy, resentment, control, we get ill, we contract from society, we become cellular rather than part of the oneness. It's not sustainable because it deconstructs the body and the mind. So the greater consciousness that we are in is communicating with our consciousness. And when we vibrate our frequency through love, into love, we grow, we evolve, we are healthy. The body has less disease, less illness. What happens when we're stressed? What happens when we worry? We get ill, we deteriorate, we get overwhelmed, we get angry easier, our communication fails between, that creates resentments, it's not sustainable. Mind-blowing really, isn't it? The epigenetics, how a cell can have different energy transferred to it without its nucleus or its brain. And this is just, we can look at different types of science. I mean, this is epigenetics. We can look at neurology. We can look at hydrology. We can look at um, so many, uh, botany. We can, we can then look, use these same functions and look at plants and how they communicate and how they grow. You know, there's many fascinating scientists out there that are, that are really, they're sticking to their guns no matter how they're being treated by 
um, everyday science because now we're talking about fringe science now. And those on the border of fringe science are always at the, the mercy of... Scrutiny, uh, outcast, yeah. Yeah, they're the out, outcasts, uh, outcasts. But if you get all of them together and look at the same, look at all their research and the message that's been said, it's identical. So you transfer it into public energy experiment, uh, an experiment you did that you outlined in the book, Love Your Energy. Can you, now that we've spoken about this and my mind is truly blown. Can you talk about this experiment you did? Sure. When I teach, I always like to push the boundaries of what my students can comprehend. So I want to, I want to, I, I push the boundaries because I want to see at what point do people stop understanding what I'm talking about. But I like to do it through evidence and scientific facts. I know I stay, I, I stay within that framework. So I'm saying to the students that we are energy beings and when you're sat with your clients they are receiving information unconsciously and if you're not aware of that and you have a bias a prejudice or you believe an outcome is going to happen you are the observer and you are going to influence that with your clients so i said to everybody close your eyes and i took them into a deep trance and i said now i want you to develop the energy within you and feel it and obviously where do you think that energy what emotion do you think i connected to that energy it was love because that's the most powerful energy that we can connect to it's sustainable and now i asked everybody to then imagine they move that energy to the left to the person sat to their their left and then i asked them everybody to then move it to the right and then back to themselves back to full waking consciousness and then i went round the room and everybody had a different experience from that. And, some, and there's only one person in the room who didn't receive the energy. And when I got to know that particular gentleman, what transpired was that he didn't want help. He didn't want to, to, to receive. So that means not only receiving as in... Um, being nurtured or helped but obviously the energy is exactly the same so you could say that energy is the primal communicator so before you communicate or we can i communicate to another person we are unconsciously picking up the energy of that person then we feel how they feel and then our vocabulary our body language is a form of communication but the number one is the energy Ah, I see. So these people that you meet on a day-to-day -day or once-in-a-lifetime opportunity are the vampires that seem to suck your energy. Going back to your experiment, if that one gentleman closed off anyone else's energy, that would give us the ownership we can handle these people when they come into our life, not to suck from our energy. Right. Or, is, or are you being manipulated? If somebody, if you feel being that you're being manipulated then there's an energy that comes with that how do you feel and if we tune into that sensation are, are we in danger are we in an environment we shouldn't be in and this links very closely to intuition because intuition is a feeling it's a sensation so if we go into life and we feel how we're interacting with people and use it as a primal communicator we're going to make decisions a lot faster instead of trusting what we're seeing and what we're hearing and what we're smelling. Wow. 
I don't think we as a society put any emphasis on this intuition. We hear the radical stories in a newspaper, but if there's fact and there's evidence to suggest that there is this sort of energy that we can feel without consciously being aware, it opens up so many more doors, doesn't it? Exactly. And if we focus, if we if we hold in our mind constantly that love is the only sustainable emotion, and that we grow in a place of love, then it would give people that don't know how to connect to love. It would give them more responsibility to own their past and heal from that, rather than dragging people into their control dramas and using other people to play out their their conditioning but then we get back to the the i call it a an emotional ecosystem so within the emotional ecosystem there is no right or wrong there can't be there's just people acting in their behavior through their conditioning i'll give you a good example so an empath will often draw the opposite of empathy into their life which can be categorized as somebody that is neurotic or somebody that has um, severe trauma through neglect or, or actual trauma in their life and they're unable to communicate clearly so they might want to manipulate. Now an empath is searching to be in an environment where they can help other people and they can heal other people. Yeah. So that's perfect, isn't it? That's a perfect environment. Somebody who wants to heal, somebody that needs to heal, they will be drawn to each other all the time. And empaths need to learn to control their energy and be aware that they cannot do the work for other people. And the people that draw the empaths into their lives, they need to take responsibility for their past, do the healing. And I would say nine out of 10 times, those relationships will dissolve anyway. And the only thing keeping those relationships together, that energy of why am I always attracted to that type of person? They're no good for me, but I, I'm energetically drawn to somebody that wants to um, abuse me or neglect me. The, the, the chances of you being quite empathetic and high up on the uh, ability to have empathy is, is quite possible. It makes me reframe all of my past experiences because now I... I see it through a different light and it makes so much sense. Right. Energy. <laughs> so let's take this a step further and look at it. If we use the same premise of the emotional ecosystem, which provides experience for everybody in the world, there are people in this world that are empathetic. They are empaths. They feel other people's emotions and they're probably about two or three percent of society. And then on the other end, what do you think is at the other end? Psychopaths. So you have people that can't feel. They are genetically unable because their, their frontal lobe is disconnected from the amygdala. So they cannot process emotion. See, on this side, you've got people that can't feel and these people that can feel. It's the, they, they are the antithesis of each other. And then you have everybody in the middle. So you have, you have ones that don't understand the ability to connect to human beings because they're genetically and their physiology totally disallows that. And then you've got the empaths that are totally feeling everything and everybody. And, you know, 
having to understand their place in the world and they're having to because not all psychopaths are, are dangerous you know not all psychopaths are criminals you can you can have that genetic disposition and not want to harm another person but yet when you're with other people you're not going to be able to feel how they feel i talk about this in my new book mind your mood and I talk about the emotional ecosystem as well and how it is in balance. Um, helping people move away from being a victim of their circumstance and taking responsibility for. So I think we have just enough time for one last thing, which is uh, just off the back of the public energy experiment you mentioned, hypnotherapy. I would consider that a total mess because I have nothing in the realm of understanding. Can you first explain what hypnotherapy is? Yeah, well, the word hypnotherapy itself is a little bit of a minefield because like the word love, everybody has their own connotation towards it. Everybody has their own understanding of what hypnotherapy is about. So basically, it is the only modality in the world that communicates with our subconscious mind. So psychiatry, psychology, counseling, um, EFT, NLP, CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, neuro-linguistics, none of them specialize in the subconscious mind. There's only one modality, and that's hypnotherapy. So the subconscious mind is responsible for about 98% of your mind. So your standards, your beliefs, your values, um, your habits are all projected from your subconscious mind into your consciousness. So if you want to make fast, safe, lasting change, deal with the subconscious mind, heal the old programs, release the old energy, and then you can make, make change that's instant. I remember back in a former life when I was a, a footballer, I'd put all my time and energy into being a footballer. Um, I came across motivation on YouTube which then led me down the rabbit hole of NLP, um, hypnotherapy, not so much. It was too far out of my realm of consciousness at that time. So I stayed within the motivational, inspirational realm. And one of the things that I came across was your limiting beliefs, the fear of success, the fear of failure, um, these different fears that you aren't aware of until you look back and see your patterns and how you've reacted and one of those i tried for a long long time to overcome was the counterintuitive fear of success the fear that i'm not who i say i am if i become successful i don't think i'm ready for that those sort of ideas that has since passed but using hypnotherapy how would you take from a general uh, session how would you go about getting someone into that frame of mind? Because it's quite a deep level of thinking. Well, the process of taking somebody into a, into a, a trance and then connecting to the part of their mind is very different from the principle. So let me explain the principle. With hypnotherapy, we deal with the cause, not the symptoms. So what you're talking about is the symptoms in your life. The cause 
was an event, a significant event, or a learned behavior that you experienced in your past. Right. So as hypnotherapists, we just go straight to where it started. Yeah, which makes sense. Yeah. Right. <laughs> very much, very much so. Very much so. Because you can talk about it until the cows come home. It's not going to change your subconscious beliefs. The only way to change your subconscious beliefs is to communicate with the subconscious mind. And basically, we do that through metaphors, through um, visualizations, feelings, dialogue. And then using all of that, we can then communicate. And it is a mind of its own. So we have to do it in a very special way. You don't communicate with the subconscious mind the same way you'd communicate with the conscious mind. The vocabulary, the terms that we use are completely different. Right, right. And this trance, it's not like the typical hypnotherapy or hypnotism that we've seen on uh, entertainment shows where they're walking around a stage like a chicken. It's different to that, I'm assuming. Well, what, what you're talking about is ent yeah entertainment so it is the same trance however the intention is different so let me let me explain that for a minute okay you you and me and you we go to a hypnotist show i'm not sure i'm an introvert are you an introvert are you an yeah. are you an introvert right okay so you and i we we don't want to perform okay but people that love singing and acting and karaoke, they want to be on the stage. So you and I are at a hypnotist show and the hypnotist points us to and says, come and be part of the show. What's going to happen? Really, no thanks. Right. Because he cannot engage our free will. So the two sat next to us are, might be terrible at karaoke, might be terrible at acting, but they love entertaining if they're in the right mood and the hypnotist asks them to be part of the show, what's going to happen? Oh, they're going to jump at it, aren't they? Right. Right. So what have they done when they now, did they know what to expect when they go onto the stage? Of course they do because everybody in the audience knows they're at a hypnotist show. They know it's for entertainment. They know they're going to be made to do things that are going to be quite strange and abstract, like chasing their left leg or cooking like a chicken or whatever. But they're open to that and they've given their free will because they walked with their own consciousness onto the stage and sat down. Ah, I see. That's the difference. So when people come to see me, they come with their own free will and I use their intentions to want to make permanent lasting change. And the same can be said, the same can be said if I was to drag somebody off the streets and say, hey, you look like you could give up smoking or you look a little bit overweight. Let me help you. What do you think the, the, the outcome of that would be? <laughs> I don't think very good. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Because it's a game. Because it's against their free will. And they've not allowed you, they've not given you their intention. Ah, that's powerful. That, that destigmatizes hypnotherapy for me, yeah. Right. And it also empowers us to believe that we have intentions and those intentions are from our mind, which is an energy. 
and our mind interacts with our brain, which is physical, and our physical body. So our intentions are very, very powerful. So we have to make sure they come from a place of love. Because if we show people intentions from a place that we manufacture, fear is manufactured, it's not real. Only love is real. Compassion, freedom, joy, oneness, serenity, all those beautiful words are real. Everything that comes from fear, control, jealousy, envy, we create, we manufacture, and it's a choice. Every single, every single minute of the day, we have a choice. Which side are we going to be on? Where is our intention for our moving us towards our purpose in life? Creating passion and enthusiasm comes from this side, from love only. And when we don't achieve, when we feel less than, when we have low confidence, when we have low self-esteem, we're on that side from fear. And this is a really easy concept just to take away with you right now. And it's empowering. It's really easy to remember. Which side of the coin are you on? Just ask yourself, you know, 24 hours in a day. Just sit and say to yourself, where am I right now? What am I connected to? You know, am I thriving? Am I growing? Am I enthusiastic? Am I passionate? So which side am I on? Well, I'm on this side. All right. Am I feel less than do i feel do i feel trapped do i feel like i'm being manipulated do i feel that i'm not growing which side do you want yeah wow and just being mindful of it the past few guests i've had have said the same thing to be mindful of your situation well even and i'll take it a step further than that and i would say be mindful of how you feel in the situation because the situation is the emotional ecosystem. There is no right or wrong. The emotional ecosystem's perfect. If you walk out into the world saying, why have I been treated that way? You are not in control of your reaction to the world. So when people are treating you in a way you don't want to be treated, let's take a step back. That's okay. You be you. I'm going to be me. And I'm going to stay from this side and I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to be compassionate because I can walk away from you, but you've got to be you all day long. Mm -hmm. And that's their choice too. I think that's a brilliant way to end this. So Anthony, thank you very much. Where can people go to find more and what's coming up next? You said there's another book on the horizon. Yeah. So uh, the, my third book, uh, Mind Your Mood, will be published in a couple of months, which is a, which helps people understand the dynamics in relationships, the emotional ecosystem, the difference between right and wrong and all that philosophy. Um, on my website, anthonyaugustine.co.uk, you can find um, free samples of my books. You can get free meditations. You can get uh, the course dates when I'm teaching hypnotherapy in the UK, Sheffield, Leeds, Manchester, and um, Liverpool in November of this year. So there's a lot of information you can get there, loads of free stuff that you can download as well. Yeah. And what social medias do you have? So on Instagram, um, if you search either Anthony Augustine, PhD, Dr. Anthony or Dr. Augustine on Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on those. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Anthony. It's been a, a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me.